Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird. This podcast is brought to you by The Joyful Fashionista, an online marketplace for buying and selling secondhand and sustainable clothing. Make cash selling as you declutter or buy sustainable and fabulous fashion. Yuma Frugalisters and welcome. Today I have a special guest and of course all of my guests are special. This guest is someone whose work will shed insights into the psychological factors behind how we are with money. But first I have a favour to ask of you. If you enjoy this podcast and find it useful for you, please pay it forward by sharing with a friend. And even better, please follow the Joyful Frugalista podcast. Evan Lucas is the Head of Strategy at InvestSmart. He is a regular commentator on ABC Television and Radio, Today, The Project and Sky News. His career in finance has taken him to the Netherlands, the UK and back to Australia over a decade and a half. He has a fascination with behavioural finance. He is author of his recently published book, Mind Over Money. And I have to say, you have one of the best quotes I have ever seen in support of your book. For those of you who may be looking at this book or have seen it before, Alan Kohler, who, you know, is a bit of a kind of legend in the money circles, has endorsed it saying, mind over money is one of the best written, most engaging, and at heart, most sophisticated books on personal finance that I've read. And I've read a few. So if that isn't a recommendation, I don't know what is. <laughs> um, welcome, Evan. Thank you, Serena. Thank you for having me. And thank you for that open. That's, um, that's an incredible. I'm, the one thing we're going to talk about with this is money is one of the great levelers and it's about being honest. And so I'm always very honest when I talk about these things. So when Alan came back with that quote, it floored me because the reason I say that for me, writing is something that I find very hard to do. So when I wrote this book, I was really, really nervous because I know I'm not a fantastic writer. Oh, um, you are. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, I, and, I, and I'm very open about it because I think if the more and more you can communicate, the more and more you can talk, the more and more you can start to identify internally about who you are, what you are, the freedom it gives you is incredible because I talk about in my book about the most important thing that human beings have found. And this is by the journal of uh, the US Journal of Psychology is autonomy. And autonomy means, you know, a lot of things to a lot of different people. But to me, autonomy is having financial freedom to do what I want, when I want, how I want, but also have the freedom to be open with myself. And what I am very open about is, is as I said, writing this book, for me, I actually loved it in the end, despite the fact that I don't like writing and I'm not great with English, um, that it was quite a thing. And then when Alan's quote came back, it was really quite humbling to sit there and go, oh, I've actually written something that might be okay and people might actually want to read it so it's been it's been an incredible couple of periods for me because this is something that my 18 year old self would never have thought would have happened for me to write a book because at the time english was something that i did not like at all (laughs) well you've overcome that fear of writing in english to write a beautiful book and of course alan kohler wasn't the only person who's endorsed your book no he wasn't and i'm very lucky that i have some really good support so effie zohos who i know is a big supporter of your program She's mm-hmm. been on here a couple of times. She has. She's fabulous. Yeah, she's brilliant. And if you haven't gone and, and had a look at her books, particularly her first one around what she calls Converse to, to Louis Vuitton, and that sort of it's a beautiful book about how to you know expand your financial horizons. 
and then her ditch to uh, you know her ditch the debt is the other one that she's done very well. She's done a kid books as well, but Effie also supported me. She's she's backed it and, and, and has been very very strong. Again, very privileged. I'm apparently I'm only the second person she's ever actually backed in a book. So again, wow. thank you to her. And then the other two, Brooke Cordy and also Elise Morgan, they are huge huge players in this world. If you don't know who Elise Morgan is, she is the face of the business on the ABC. She and I are as thick as thieves. I love her to bits. She is immensely clever, incredible lady, and and she's there as well, along with Brooke Cordy, who's been the big face of money in Australia for a long time, where she was on Sky Business, the host of that and the anchor. Now she's actually the host of of Money News on uh, what is 2GB, 3AW, depends on where you are in the country. She's on maternity leave with her fourth now. That's how incredible she is. And she's also backed it as well. Well, congratulations. And I want to ask you some questions about the content of the book, obviously. And we were talking before, actually, about the Instagram effect. So Mm -hmm. Instagram, how has that had an impact on people's personal finance? Yeah, so before I go any further dive into that question, behavioral finance is a fascinating study for me because it's my background. I loved psychology at school. I loved it at uni, did it at uni, but then sort of walked away with it and went into finance. But it's always been there in part of what I think because in the end, investing, markets, finance, that's groups of people doing certain things in certain ways. And realistically, it's just watching the crowd. Like a market going up is the crowd going for buying over those that are trying to sell, right? So that's that's how it works. It's, 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 it's a crowd mentality. It's a behavioral mentality. So the Instagram effect and why this has been fascinating for me is that Instagram, in my view, and again, you can come at me if I say this wrong for those of you listening, is that Instagram and social media, so not just Instagram, but Instagram is a great one example, has created human beings into caricatures. And what I mean by that is that Instagram, you can put up a reel and it's maximum 90 seconds. And in those 90 seconds, you could you know, absolutely project a scenario of yourself that is well and truly completely off the planet. And I'm not using those words lightly. The reason I say that is that you can therefore become whatever you want. On social media and the psychology of that it's incredible it gives you a dopamine hit from a physiological point mm-hmm. of view Psycho- psychologically it gives you that absolute sort of backing that you know you're getting response from this and positive response you know that, that's typical psychology behavioral though it's also increasing your behavior to act in a certain way but it's not just you by turning yourself into a caricature you are also therefore impacting people's view of that lifestyle in such a short period of time. So the study that I'll allude to that I put in the book there is that there is a study from the Federal Reserve of Philadelphia over in the US. So if you don't know how the US monetary policy works, don't worry about it. But most of the states actually have their own Federal Reserve along with the big one that actually is is based in, in Washington. And the study showed that the most likely people to become bankrupt are the neighbors of those that win the lotto. So, and the reason for and so just yeah, back up it. there. So it's not actually the lotto winners themselves, because there's been a lot of research no. about the lotto winners themselves. Also doing that, yes. And there's been a lot of you know lotto winners coming into a windfall, not knowing what to do with it, and actually spending it all, and all of a sudden putting themselves into a level of debt and then going down. That's different. What we're talking about here with the Instagram link is that that persona that I talked about that you can project on Instagram, the lotto winner all of a sudden comes into a windfall and can start upgrading their house, buying a new home, doing whatever it is, the neighbors don't realize the windfall has happened. Right? They don't realize that something has changed completely outside of, of the normal scope of reality to help this neighbor do this. 
And the keeping up with the Joneses effect is a real thing. It's a psychological study proven that we will actually go and try and improve ourselves because of competition. And Instagram for me is that. That question you've come back to is that the whole idea is that if you want to really, really get in a, a very downward spiral with your money, with your finances, Instagram can be one of the worst things for you. And if you open yourself up, and as I said at the start of this, being honest, it's what the book is all about, being honest with yourself. If you know that you feel that you can get slightly pressured or feel that you need to spend to keep up with a certain appearance, that, that needs to be something you need to, to think about. And that is, there's nothing wrong with that. And I certainly don't want to stop you. Now, I know for someone like you, Serena, who works in a lifestyle, which I think is brilliant, you know, the frugalista lifestyle, the fire lifestyle, whatever you want to call it, is a very, very good way of living, a very, very positive way of having finance in your life. But not everybody's like that. And I want to make that very clear. Everybody's unique. And I'm not saying you're wrong in doing that. What I'm asking and what I'm saying to you is that sit up and trigger yourself. Actually, hang on. Is this what I want? I know it's what these people are doing, but is it really what I want? And is it going to get me to the goals that I have? Is it going to achieve what my family, my partner, I want? And if the questions in any of those are no, then that should be just a trigger point just to say, well, hang on, maybe I don't need to live completely to that lifestyle, but I can live to half of it or a third of it or whatever it is to make sure that you're still happy with your money but you're not putting yourself into a situation like those lot of winner neighbours and putting yourself under financial strain. Because you don't really know the truth of where people Correct. get their money from. Like they might be absolutely maxed out in credit card debt or afterpay debt or, you know, whatever the buy now, pay later scheme is. Horrible debt. Um, horrible debt, isn't it? Yeah, horrible debt. Or they might have parents who, who bail them out. I, I read once that in the US up to 25% of families have financial assistance from grandparents, you know, for schooling and things like that. So if you think doing the maths and going, well, why are they ahead and I'm not? Well, there may be something else in play. Yeah. And I talk about this as well, is that the hardest thing, and, and again, I don't use this word, but I will in the podcasts, is, you know, the, the issue of envy is, is clearly front and center. Oh, yes. Money is a very visceral thing. It's a very visceral thing for people. And, you know, particularly if you have a persona of a saver where money is a physical thing to you, like having it and holding it and seeing it constantly is a physical thing to you. Or if you're somebody that is caught up in spending and, and you know, they do need that kind of lifestyle is being happy with what they have. And what I, why I say it in that perspective is that as you just alluded to Serena is you don't know what they're doing. You don't know how they're there. I, I have people that in, I've come across in all of my walks of life over the last 17 years doing this of you know, earning incredible amounts of money. And I, and I mean eye-watering amounts of money. They're in the top one, not even two, top 1% of earners who have no money at all really because they spend it like it's nothing in, in this world and because money's always come to them. But at the same time, what they're doing with it does not necessarily mean that they're A, in a financially secure position and B, that they're actually happy with what they're doing because they just haven't thought about it in any other way. And this is the other thing. Most people in this country do not think about their finances. It's, 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 an, you know, it's an issue with financial illiteracy and, and, and whatever you want to call the term. It's more that we just don't talk about money in this country. Yeah. There's a tall poppy syndrome issue. There's a taboo around it. It's Big very taboo. much something that we just don't like to talk about. And, and it's because there is an attachment of, greed, there's an attachment of capitalism, 
but you can also look at it from the point of view that there's an attachment of envy. There's an, you know, all of these things feed into the reason why we do not like talking about money. And, you know, it's different. If you went to America, it's completely different. They are very open <laughs> about talking about money, but that's that's their culture. Ch- Chinese culture is completely completely different as well. So I have a background yeah. in, uh, in 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 Chinese. You probably don't look at it, but like it. But I speak Mandarin Chinese, and you know, the first thing people often ask is how much do you earn, and then they'll start mm. talking about investing. Where do you invest? Why do you invest? How's this doing? Yep. It's very very open and honest. Probably yeah. probably too honest sometimes. Yeah, but, but we we are the opposite. We are too closed off. As soon as you can start being honest, and it's even just talking, your partner's a difficult one. And I know you're going to come to those questions in a minute, Serena. But so, but even if it's talking to a friend, you know that that is slightly removed from your financial position, that can then, you know, the two of you can sort of talk around it. It's 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 an incredible thing. And let's also be honest, men are terrible at this. Men are the worst because we just don't talk at all. <laughs> and, and so, I also wanted to get around to that point: is that you know communication. Is is absolutely key, not just in your finances and your behavioural finance world. It's it's a key in everything. And I again, I'm really open about you know my personal experiences or friends' experiences that makes you understand that what they've gone through, you've probably done it as well. You know whether that is you know the one of the biggest financial hits people will take is the possibility of losing their job mm-hmm. or the possibility of changing career or realizing that you've come to a movement in your career or a, a space in your career where you you need to leave it and change it. It's a very frightening thing when it has a very, very reasonable or high attachment of money to it. What do you do? How do you get through that? Yep. And that's where money comes into it. Yeah. And that's where money comes into it in my view, because that's where what you want, where do you want, how you want is one of those things. And that's about time. Before I let you go on to your next question, why I say time, human beings psychologically and physiologically do not like time. So the difference between us now and us 35,000 years ago physiologically is almost nil so if you look at the actual volume of our brains they're pretty much the same our body shape our muscle construction you know anthropologists and physiologists have proven that we're pretty much the same and you can also see that we're probably as clever as we have been over that period of time there's the reason why people like hypatia or plato or newton or you know the ability to make the great wall or to develop the the the, the pyramids have happened it's because we've been as clever as we are now as we have in the past the difference is our lifestyle so the, what I'm getting to is that now we have what we call delayed return problems. We make decisions constantly, 35,000 decisions a day. But what we used to do was that we would find food, eat food, find shelter, sleep, etc. That's called instant return. We are now making decisions for the hope that tomorrow they're going to pay off or next week or next month or next year or in our world, Serena, in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And that is so hard. With super, it can be even longer if you're, you know, a young person starting out in your career. Correct. And you're not going to get access to that for many years to come. Correct. So that's a great point. So I'm again very open. I'm 38 years old. So according to the Bureau of Statistics, the average Australian male lives till 84. So I have to live my life and a bit more again before I pass away. I don't get to access my money. Let's be honest, I'm not going to get it at 67 because by the time I get to my retirement, it's probably going to move up to 70. So I'm still 32 years away from getting access to my super, but it's a beautiful thing because I know it's there. That's my what I call my beyond money. My super is waiting for me. And that's it's not, it's a flawed system in some respects, but it's a beautiful thing because it creates a habit of saving, of investing for the future in a beautiful way. And it's one of the best things that Australia has over a lot of other countries is our superannuation 
And if you can put your super movements and habits into your other life around money, what you're going to do between the ages of 20, 30, 40, before retirement, you can have an incredible, powerful tool that makes time a continuum that your money is waiting for you at every point in the cycle. And you alluded before to relationships. Sorry, I talk a lot. No, this is what you want on a podcast. We want to be chatting. <laughs> but you alluded before to relationships and particularly who you talk to about money and your partner maybe being not the best person to speak to. Uh, I was just wondering if you could elaborate on that a bit more. They should be, but why I say they're not is that studies show that in the top five hardest discussions to have with your partner is your finance. And that includes the top one is intimacy, then sexual activity is second, finance is third. So that is how awkward we find talking about finances. It, it, you know, it, these are you know really, really personal things. And it, and it can be, and the reason for it, again, this is a societal issue that I'm about to say, is that what the studies also show is that, unfortunately, we can be quite shallow in that destructive spending, which is things like gambling, high amounts of spending on alcohol, mm -hmm. cigarettes, et cetera, is an incredible turnoff. We also know that your level of income, unfortunately, can be a turnoff. We know also from the studies that your prospects of future earnings can be a turnoff. So it's no wonder that we find talking about finances with our partner, our life partner, difficult because society, unfortunately, is ingrained with those negative behaviors behind them. However, the freedom that comes with talking about your finances with your partner, the freedom that comes with working as a unit rather than a silo is incredible. And that's why when you can start discussing about, okay, Serena, I know from what you do that clearly you are very good with money. And therefore in your partnership, I don't know your partnership at all, but I'm using you as an example, that you probably are the, the one that should be dealing with the money. As long as your partner's fully open with you and you with, with, with them, the ability to work as a unit gets higher. So my wife is incredible at what she does. She's a barrister. She's you know an incredible thinker. And I constantly try and badger her to pay attention to our finances. But she's open in the fact that she goes, I'm just not that enthralled with it. I mean, clearly it's what you do for a vocation, so therefore it should be yours. But we talk constantly about it. So she's very much in the loop about what I'm doing with our money. And not only that, it therefore means that she sees things differently to me. So she will all of a sudden go, actually, can we do this with it? Because I want X, Y, Z, or I want this to happen, or blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, it's great because we have that personal relationship. So the reason I say all those things in the background and giving you those examples is that the other thing that's on the rise at the moment is financial infidelity. Financial mm, infidelity- It's huge. Is, it's huge. And, and for those of you that don't know what it is, financial infidelity is, it's a hard way to say it. It's, it's not necessarily cheating on money, what it is, is putting your partner or your relationship into a scenario where you have probably actually been hiding your finances from them. That's why it's infidelity. You're sort of hiding the, the true scenario that you're in. And it is normally around debt. So it means one part of the partnership has maybe remortgaged the house, taken out additional loans, taken out additional credit cards, is going into high leverage investing, whatever it might be, and putting the whole scenario into a house of cards scenario and it collapses. Uh, and why it's so detrimental is that unlike physical infidelity, where the emotional hurt is never underestimated, but there is an ability to walk away from it, 
there's a legal attachment to financial infidelity because there the partner is. is also attached to that debt and they are also attached to that scenario. Even if they didn't actually go with it or sign up to it, they are on the contract. And even if there's like separate bank accounts and even if you're able to say, look, I had no idea about this, you're still married. So it's yeah. or you're you know in a relationship, it is it is a very difficult thing. So Yes. People sometimes ask me, you know, should I have, you know, joint bank accounts? Should we have separate bank accounts? Well, that's a decision for you you to make and everyone's different, but you're not going to escape your liability if something goes wrong. So you still got to have those honest discussions about money. Yeah. And so actually let's let's use Effie. Effie's a beautiful example here. The reason we'll go back to her is that she's very open about the fact that her and her husband have separate everything. And that works for her. And she's talked about the fact that when her husband actually came onto a joint credit card, it freaked her out. <laughs> the way he spent, it was completely against her personality. And she actually canceled the credit card within six weeks. Now, I've already opened up with the say very clearly that my wife and I, we're a bit different. Everything is together. We do everything together because that's how we work. And that works for me. And that works for, for, for Julia and I. But again, I agree with you. That doesn't necessarily mean it's the best thing for you. The other thing that's becoming, so the studies show that one in four millennials have separate bank accounts leading into a relationship and one in five keep it that way after getting married. Wow. And what, yeah, what is now also being shown is that one in two millennials will have hybrid scenarios. They'll have a joint account for expenses, but two separate accounts for their incomes, et cetera. And they will keep that going one in four after they get married. And that's an incredible statistic. But what they're also saying is that it gives them the ability to feel, and it's the word they use, feel that they're not impacting the family finances when they want to do something for themselves. And there's nothing selfish about saying that either. It's more about they don't want their spending to impact the family spending. So if you do want to go out and get a new outfit or a new set of golf clubs or a new bike or a new car on your own personal money, by all means do that but you're not impacting the family finances. And therefore, if you know if you spend all of it to zero, you understand that therefore you don't have individual money. You've got to go back to the family. Now, again, some people that works and clearly more and more people are doing that. And it's something to really think about, but it's becoming a very, very big, strong trend. And again, it shows that behavior and the communication is there to justify that as being a way going forward with people's finances. Yeah, it's all really fascinating how everyone manages their money is different. Which brings me back to a question which is very key to your writing, which is, are we born with beliefs about money? That's like, are we born with our beliefs about politics? Are we born with beliefs about you know the world? So the answer there is clearly not. Unfortunately, there is a bit of luck. And why I say luck is that it is, and this again, you can argue this about psychology, you know, the the line of, of cognition psychology or the line of behavioral psychology would probably agree on this idea is that this is, a, this is an experienced learner. So what I mean by that is that if you put your relationships, your work, your friends and family, your partner, the experiences that they have, the way they act with money, the way your family's acted with money and stick it all in a box and shake it up, that will probably be a fairly good example or explainer about how your money is. So you know, if you do unfortunately have a scenario where your parents have always struggled with money, they've lived through credit card to credit card or loan to loan, haven't been able to get a loan, your view on money and your experience with money is going to be significantly impacted to those, to someone like me, who is incredibly lucky, 
and I write about this in the book, that I had a grandfather who was inc- very influential for my life in money. He was a very good investor. The one thing he didn't do, and I've spoken about this already, he didn't talk. So he didn't actually, again, the Australian thing, he did not talk about his finances, period, unless you forced him to. So when I was a kid, I used to sit there and see him reading the middle pages of the business section of the newspaper back in the 90s, basically checking the closing price of all of his portfolio. He'd write it down and blah, blah, blah. And I just used to ask him about it. So I was very lucky that I had that influence in my life. Not everybody has that. And I'm very open that I am lucky I've got that as my background. But my parents didn't talk about money, period. It wasn't what we did, uh, unfortunately, which you know is good and bad. And so getting back to the question, no, you're not born with it. You certainly get an experience from it. The other extension of that question is that can you learn to be better with it? And the answer to that is yes, right? So if you have, unfortunately, a, you know, you're coming from slightly back with a negative impact on, on money, please be aware you can get forward. You can actually get ahead, get a better relationship with it. Realize that you know, your finances, as I said, it's about financial autonomy. They can still get you there for whatever you want. Now, not everybody wants to be a millionaire. Not everybody wants to be that. If you can be open that that's not you either, then that's the first start. That is your financial autonomy. I want my money to do X for me. I don't want it to rule me. I want it to be there to support me to do what I want to do. Mm, that's really key, isn't it? Being really clear about what you want. And it's different for everyone. And you would think mm. that this would be obvious once again, but you know, for some people, you know, they might have a value around sending their, their their kids to private school for education. Now, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's just like some people will have a value around that. Yes. But you, we often don't talk about that. You know, like often people will go and get married and then they'll go, oh, no, actually, my value was that I wanted to stay home and the kids to go to private school education and we wanted to have a cruise holiday every year. <laughs> And all of these types of things. But if it's never talked about, you don't know how to prepare for that or budget for it or make it happen. Yeah, exactly. And again, this gets back to our discussion we had a couple of minutes ago about being happy for people with what they want to achieve. So the other interesting thing about what we've just discussed is that I, I completely with you. Education, in my view, is, a, is part and parcel about who I am and what I am. And I want my two beautiful girls to have that same thing. So I, I'm, you know, I personally do want to sort of save to send them to a level of education that, that, that I think they should get because I think education, but some people don't see it that way. Some people also see it as a negative thing. You know, you're paying to get ahead. And I went, yeah. No, 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 no. That is, again, that is, that is a connotation that shouldn't exist from the point of view. You can certainly have that view, but that means that you, your view is trying to change my view. And I, that is what I want to say very clearly is that, Everyone is unique. Not everybody wants to do that. And that's completely fine. If you want to go through schooling for your children in a certain way, public education, what have you, that is great. That is great. If you want your kids to go through private schooling like I do, that is great as well. There is no right or wrong answer. And that's where I think what we're discussing here about in Australia, talking about money this way and being open about this kind of stuff is really taboo. Because again, are you actually upset with the way the education is going to be given because they're, you know, you're paying higher education fees uh, for, for private schooling? Or is it because it's something that you want and you're not achieving it? Or is it because you think that it's a value not necessarily even? All of those are valid points. They're val- and I'm, again, not saying they're wrong. They are no, no, valid points. They're valid points, but it's just you need to talk about it. Correct. As you're, when you're pregnant or beforehand saying, well, what kind of education do you want for this child or any future children? And then the answer is private schools. Well, 
there's a number of decisions that will flow from that. It might mean that both yeah. parties are in the workforce or that you set up a, a, an investment fund or you don't go on expensive holidays, whatever it is. But if that's the decision that that's the value and that's the priority, then you're on the same page. But if you're trying to do that, then plus everything else, <laughs> you're going to fall down. Yeah. And uh, you've made a beautiful point there. From the point, again, the communication is high. And for both of my children, I mean, my youngest one is four months old. As soon as she came about, like I did with my fourth, my, my four-year-old, was that we started an education fund. And that's just me. That's what my wife and I want to do. But, and that is, again, today, tomorrow, and beyond. My tomorrow money is their education. It, it's, it's waiting for them when they get to the level that we're going to send them away to that next level of schooling. And whatever's left, we will, we will give to them because we want them to start with. And, and again, I'm already starting to do with my oldest one of getting her to understand the value of it, right? So, you know, it is the other thing that the studies show is that people's uh, relationship with money is formed up to about the age of seven and it can then lay dormant till they're about their early 20s. So, the way that you act with your money in the early parts of your kids' years is actually really formative for them. So, again, if you can start introducing to them the idea of saving, the idea of interest. So, you know, what I do is that when my daughter does her chores and I give her a dollar coin, I say, if you hold on to that dollar coin for a week, I'll give you an extra 10 cents. And it just slowly introducing those kinds of principles mm. to it. It's, it's again, that for me, that is the behavior in my world. That is about making positive behavior. And already she knows that. So she saves up for things. But, you know, we went to the show and she had her $20 that she'd saved very well for a four-year-old. That is impressive for a four-year-old. Yeah, but she realized she was spending it, all right? And when she realized she was spending it, she stopped at 10. And she says, Daddy, I don't want to spend anymore. And I said, that is your decision. That's a beautiful decision. And I can get that. If you want to use it again, you can. But she didn't. And she had an incredible time, loved every minute of it, but realized that she was spending her money that she had earned, that she wanted to keep a bit more for the future. Fabulous. Teaching early habits early, which is I wouldn't expect anything less for someone who had a background in behavioral finance. <laughs> and I have one final question, which is, do you have a frugalista tip to share? Is there something you do maybe at home to save money that's a bit unique to you? Oh, yeah. Okay. So the one that is unique to me in terms of that frugalistic thing is I will actually put any form of money that is above and beyond our expenditure into the investment return that we have. And what I mean by that and why it's different is that once it goes in there, in our world, it can't come out. So I've actually deliberately told the institution that I use that the withdrawal has to go through a phone call and that both my wife and I have to get out. So, so this is a bank account that is set up to be like an investment, higher interest account. Uh, it's a cash management account from the point of view that it's the account that I can then use to do all of our investing, whether that's in shares or in bonds or what have you. But every dollar that comes in is automatically put there. So it's a forced saving behavior. It also therefore does two things. It means therefore the money that we have to spend is capped because our, the way that we do things is that we do it on credit, but we can't go past a certain level. It gives us 55 days, it offsets our home loan, but at the same time, it also knows how much money is sitting in our bank account. And if it's not there, it will actually stop us. So it's a frugal way of stopping us spending. At the same time, the advantage of it is that it's making me 
invest like super as we spoke about halfway through this so it's not necessarily new but it's unique to us in the fact that once it goes into that account i have put up checks and balances that stops us from withdrawing it and it can't come back out so our money is therefore working quickly saving faster and investing at a higher level than we probably would if we didn't have those checks and balances on ourselves so you're prioritizing your investing in terms of when your money comes in it prioritizing it by putting in that account mm-hmm. we are indeed so it's what i call my beyond my, my tomorrow money and tomorrow could be tomorrow it could be three years or in the girl's instance you know it could be 12 years away before we need it but it's there and it's waiting there and again i just sit there and my wife and i open up our app and make sure that we can see it we know where it's at it gives us that dopamine hit of knowing that the money is there but we can't spend it and then we've never been big spenders but again that frugalistic question and the way of doing that sort of you know financial independence quickly is to make sure your money is in a position that is not necessarily it's not the word isn't tempting but it's not there to be used in a in a, a manner that can be not getting to my goals at a, at a rate of knots that we want to get to it because we've got goals that are very very quick we are we realize that which means we have to live in a certain way to get to those goals makes sense well best wishes <laughs> on your book so for anyone Thank wishing you. to buy mind over money i assume it's in all good bookstores and online it is indeed all good bookstores uh it's so yeah look at booktopia look at amazon it's in things like dimmicks readings etc you yeah it's in the finance section you probably won't miss it it's it's pretty loud in a good way. It's a really important message way. to have. And so congratulations once again. And if you've enjoyed this chat and other chats on my podcast, please also join the Joyful Frugalista Facebook group to hang out and chat about this and other topics. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. And of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley. Stop.